Okay. <clears throat> so this morning, we are continuing our way through John 6. As I said last week, a few years ago, I preached through this 70-some, well, 50-some verses in, in one week. We're now going to do it in four to five, maybe six weeks. So this week we're continuing. We're, on, we're going to be in verse 35. Now over the last several weeks I've had a few people, some of you guys and even some people outside of our church who just know of our situation have asked me if we're going to continue through John. If, if we're going to just kind of, now that things are, are different and some things have changed, lots of things have changed, if we're just going to change books. I've had several people ask me that question. And, and my response to everybody thus far has been, no, I think we're going to stay in John. I think we're going to stick with John for the time being. And here's why. The passages like today's passage is exactly what we need to be hearing every single week. There's a reason that we started John all those weeks ago. And it's passages like this one. Right? Passages like John 6, 35 to 40, that we need to be hearing repetitively. Like Martha and Mary, right? We need to come and sit and hear the gospel. That's what we need. That's what we need. So this morning, you know, I don't have any clever word picture or clever analogy or historical event that depicts what this passage talks about. But the theological depth and richness and the gospel that just oozes out of this passage speaks for itself. And so the question is, how then do we take these great truths and apply them to our lives? Because as we have heard echoed for years and years and years, simply looking at Christology and doing nothing with it is a waste of time. So how do we take these beautiful verses and use them and apply them? Because today, right, within these five verses... These few sentences that Jesus speaks, we're going to have heavy Christological truths that come out. Talking about who Jesus is, who the Christ is. We're going to have these, these discussions on the topic of election, right? And that is a, a still a hot thing today. The obedience of the Son. The preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. The economy of the Trinity. All of these things flow out of this passage. And they're beautiful. But what do we do with them? And the answer is, just to give the answer up front. If the answer is that it simply leads us to worship. To shut our mouths and worship. Then that is something then that is something, right? That is something. So sitting and basking in God's graciousness, his mercy, his love, 
so that we may know something more about him. Let that be our direction and our challenge today. So, our text. I'm going to start with verse 26. Actually, maybe I'll start with verse 22 where this kind of scene kind of begins. But our focus this morning, as the slide up above me says, is verses 35 to 40. All right, but I want to read the whole context in, 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 in view here. So verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you are seeking, or not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your bellies are full. Do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says to them, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And here's where we begin today. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They want to see the signs. Jesus, prove it. What signs are you going to do to entertain me? What are you going to do to show it? The bread of heaven is the one who is sent by the Father. Sir, give us this bread. Jesus' response, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who seeks or looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, your word is good news to us. 
And Lord, we admit that we come and sit before you because we seek the bread of life. Lord, let it be put away from us to seek some worldly gain and worldly pleasure and worldly sustenance that only fulfills for a time. But Lord, let us come and sit under your word and be fed this bread of life. Give us your word this morning. Teach us, lead us, guide us, shape us, mold us by your spirit this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, quick reminder of the context of this passage. Quick reminder, right? We have Jesus feeding the 5,000. Twelve baskets of leftovers. Most definitely more than 5,000 people being fed at that time. The night comes. The disciples get in the boat. Jesus kind of retreats into the mountains on his own. And the disciples leave across the sea on the boat. The crowd sees this. They watch the disciples go. They see disciple, or Jesus retreat fall asleep for the night, wake up in the morning, disciples are gone, Jesus is gone. Where did Jesus go? It wasn't in the boat. So they go off looking for him. They find him across the sea in Capernaum, right, as verse 59 will tell us later, they find Jesus in the synagogue. This is where this monologue happens, in the synagogue. And so this conversation begins. The conversation began with what we talked about last week. This, this whole idea of, of this bread flows throughout this passage from verse 22 to verse 71. This idea of nourishment, this idea of bread, this idea of eternal sustenance flows throughout this entire passage. Right? That is, this is a word picture that Jesus is using to show who he is. And we even get this, this idea, this manna from heaven, right? Recalling Exodus 16, recalling Numbers 11. This time in which the Egyptians, or the Israelites were removed, taken away, put out, left Israel. Redeemed from slavery. And were fed miraculously in the wilderness. That's the, the picture. Remember, Jesus, the night before, did just that. Physical bread from heaven to feed 5,000 people on a mountainside listening to him. But Jesus is reframing this whole conversation. He's reframing this entire concept of bread from heaven to fill your bellies and pointing it to himself. I am the bread of life. Jesus says. To start where we are today. So three things today. Point number one. The first thing is. Though he was rejected by many. Though he was rejected by many. Jesus is indeed. The only. Only only source for salvation and fulfillment. He is the only one. Verses 
35 and 36. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus now, as he enters into this next phase of his teaching and this next passage of the dialogue, which is really a monologue in this portion, he is mincing no words. He is being abrupt. He is being clear. He is being as upfront as he can be, right? What did they say to him just prior? Sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread. We want this bread. Remember, Jesus says to them, It wasn't Moses who gave you the manna in the wilderness, it wasn't him, it was the Father. It was God the Father. He is the one who gave you this bread to eat. And truly, truly, calling them to attention. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus' response, as I said, up front, mincing, no words, I am the bread of life. Throughout the Gospel of John, the author, John, is using these these shadows or these echoes of the book of Isaiah, right? I've referenced Isaiah every time I've preached in this Gospel thus far. I have mentioned a passage from Isaiah. John is constantly using echoes from Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah writes in chapter 55. Let's not stop pointing out these connections now. Because I think Jesus, as he is talking, he is is subtly showing us Isaiah 55. And here's what Isaiah 55 tells us. Remember, this, this idea of this bread of life. Talking about one who will never hunger, one who will never thirst anymore. This abundance of food, a Thanksgiving meal, a Christmas dinner, all the cousins, the grandparents, the parents, the siblings around the table with a full platter. This abundance of food. Here's what Isaiah 55 tells us. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you see, do you hear the connections? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. The echoes. The food of eternal nourishment. Right? We talked about last year, or last, last week, 
wasting our energies, this Ecclesiastes journey I mentioned, chasing after the wind. That's what Isaiah is asking about here. Why are you spending your efforts where they will be wasted? He continues, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Ever, anytime, anytime you hear this everlasting covenant with David, it is almost always a messianic promise. It is almost always a pointing to Jesus Christ. That's what this is. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. A nation, a people that they don't know will come, will come. To be fed this food of eternal nourishment. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. There's that word again. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees and the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah 55, John 6, this, this bread that you do not labor for, this bread that you have done nothing to earn, this bread that gives you some eternal nourishment, this eternal sustenance. That's this bread that Isaiah is talking about, pointing towards the Messiah. This is the bread which Jesus is bluntly and abruptly talking about in regards to himself. And so as Isaiah asks the question, why do you work Spend your money, strive for things that will be rolled up and burned. Why do you chase after the wind? Apart from Christ, what is our spiritual state? Death. Dead, right? 
Two weeks ago was the New York City Marathon. There are seven major marathons. I don't know, Berlin, Tokyo, Boston, New York. There's a few more. There's seven of them. London, there's seven of them. Right, so last week was the New York City Marathon. Big deal. New York City loves its marathon. Crowds everywhere, cheering. It's, it's a big, big scene. However, you see some of, the, some of the finish line photos, videos of these runners who are literally being carried by four people to the finish line because they are dehydrated, they are now malnourished, their body is wasting away because of the constant 26.3 mile grind. They can't make it to the finish line. Their body has given up on them. They have to be carried or crawling or army crawling to get across the finish line. That's what we are apart from Jesus Christ. Even more dramatic than that, imagine a, a runner just dead on the road, which has happened. That's us. Striving, working, toiling, running this race that will eventually kill us. Like a deer pants for water, so our soul thirsts for you, God, to re recall the psalm. That's who we are apart from Jesus. That's who this crowd is as they listen to Jesus. Lord, give us, Rabbi, give us this bread always. For their sustenance is waning. Their sustenance is temporary. Their bodies will burn up and be gone. Or, biblically speaking, be facing the wrath of God for all of eternity. But as Isaiah 55 points out, as Jesus points out here, his offer is one of abundance. The answer to this spiritual malnourishment, to this spiritual desperation, this spiritual dehydration, this spiritual existential eternal death. It's not your jobs. It's not your dreams. It's not your money. It's not your children. It's not your parents. It's not your, your, your goals in life. There's only one place to come and eat for free. And that is at the feet of our Lord and Savior, of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The woman at the well we talked about last week. In 2018, I don't know if you know the rap hip-hop artist Mac Miller from Philadelphia, no, Philadelphia, he died in 2018. Just a few months before his death, he did a little tiny desk 
concert. I don't know if you know the NPR Tiny Desk Concerts. They have these amazing artists sitting in front of like a corner nook full of books behind a desk and they play their songs. They play their music. It's really neat, actually. I love them. They're quite good. Mac Miller did one just before he died. And one of his songs is called 2009. 2009. Uh, if you're going to go listen to it, there's cuss words in it. But throughout this song, the artist is recalling what his life was like before fame. That's what the whole song is. He, 2009, I now know what's behind that door. Meaning before the year 2009, he was oblivious. But now he knows the darkness behind the door that he opened. Talks about in the song his demons being bigger than his house. He talks about how all he's trying to do is find God. It's a song of brokenness. It's a song of desperation. And it's a very touching song when you listen to him perform it live. And then you realize he's going to be dead from an overdose in less than a year's time. The demons that haunt us might not be so exaggerated as those of Mac Miller and other people in this city. But that same desperation that haunts him haunts everybody outside of Jesus Christ. And it may not manifest itself in the way it did for him, but it might manifest itself in striving and toiling and never ceasing until we find our fulfillment. But realizing, like the marathon runner, oh my gosh, I still have two miles to go. I'm dead and I cannot make it. That's us. Just striving to find God. Striving to battle the mental and, and, and cognitive stresses of our lives. without realizing that there is the one who says, come to me. Come to me. Give me your burdens. Take this bread, for it will sustain you always. So, I spent a long time on that. What do we do with verse 36? What do we do with verse 36? But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Well, as I mentioned Isaiah, I mentioned Isaiah again. Recall the passages. Isaiah 6. Go and tell them that they will not see. Go and tell them that they will not hear. The later passages in Isaiah when God tells to Isaiah, I will open their eyes. I will open their ears. Here we have these people whose eyes have been blinded, whose eyes have been closed. This is not, this is not a demonstration of Jesus' inability to save. That's not what this is. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. It's a demonstration of Jesus saves those whom the Father has given him. Which we will get to now. Point two. The work of salvation is a precise work of God. 
It is a precise work of God, effectually carried out by God in every facet. The work of salvation is a precise work of God. There is no ambiguity to God's decree and what he has chosen to do. He's not like the, the chef in the kitchen who's like, hey, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we'll see what happens. His work is a precise work. His work is an effective, effectual work. 37 and 38. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from the Father, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Like a, like a good football team. You hear the coach interview after the game. The team did well today. They performed in, in all phases of the game. Special teams, offense, defense. They, they performed and carried out their tasks as they were supposed to. The economy of the Trinity is not all that different. Though you take any analogy to its logical ends, yes, nothing works when it comes to the Trinity. But there is a role and a task for each member of the Trinity to carry out throughout the act, uh, uh, the history, the, the plan of salvation. Right? The Father, He is the active agent in election. The active agent in election, 30, 30, um, 37a, all that the Father gives me, insinuating, implying that there was a work by the Father to give a people to the Son. The Father, the active agent in election, right? Think of the Old Testament Israel, a shadow of the church. A type of the church, a chosen, selected people by God himself to be his children. It's a shadow. It's a type of the church. The church is the true Israel, you see. God has a chosen people that before time began, he has elected and chosen. And it is those who he gives to the Son. We have a confession that we subscribe to in this church, right? The abstract of principles, which we adopted several years ago. The abstract of principles is a summarization of the 1689, the second London Baptist Confession. I have it tattooed right here on my hand. It's important to me. It's important to this church. So the use of confessions is helpful because they... They are roads on which we can follow so that we don't veer off into the ditch on either side. And here's what the 1689 tells us. That God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever that comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, 
nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And here's what else it says. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so he has by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. So he has elected and he has ordered the way in which the elect all come to saving faith. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. They are effectually, there's that word again, they are effectually called unto faith in Christ. By His Spirit, working in due season, in time, they are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power. So what does all this mean? How does any of what I just read relate to John 6, 37 and 38. Well, God's election, right? The active agent in election, the Father, has decreed from before time began, right? The act, this decree contains the election within it. This decree is a single act by the Father. Outside of time and space, within the triune community, One comprehensive plan that he has put in place and contained within that plan is every moment, every personal history, every thought, every action of all time has been laid out by God before salvation, before time began. Within that decree is God's plan of salvation. Right? This is not God acting on the timeline as like the Marvel comic timelines where time comes up, okay, God makes this decision. Next thing happens, God God makes this decision. Next thing happens, God makes this decision. God is not making these decisions as time goes by. You see, God's decree is a single act that happened before time began and he laid it out and knows all of it. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen people, fourteen people in this room. He knows every thought, action, deed, word you have ever had. Every single one of us. That's fourteen of us. There's seven billion people in this world right now. He knows every thought, action, deed of all seven billion people on this earth right now. Plus every human being that ever lived before today. And every human being that will ever live before or after today, in his decree, he lays that out in one single act, knowing every possibility, knowing all that happens, and yet not making his determinations by any of those things. He just decrees as he will because he is good. And he has chosen to act such. And so within that decree... We have God's plan of salvation. This creation, this fall, this redemption, this consummation, right? Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But go there and read Ephesians chapter 1. You think of God's election. That he has ordained 
a people to be his before time began. Ephesians chapter 1. Those whom the Father gives, the Son will keep. So we have this act on the part of God the Father. This economy of the Trinity, right? The work of the Trinity. God the Father acting in election. This decree laying out all of redemption history. All of salvation. You can even go to 1689 later. Read chapter 10, paragraphs 1 and 2. Talking about effectual calling, irresistible grace. The term, whatever term you want to use. The fact that God's work is effective. He doesn't just make salvation possible for you. He hasn't just made salvation possible for the world. Like, yeah, if Johnny on the street corner decides one day he wants to believe in God, the option is there. It's not how salvation worked. But he has effectually caused it to happen for all of his people. It will happen for his elect. How? That's the question we don't know. Right? And as David and Jen plan for the mission field... They go knowing that there are elect somewhere and they need to hear the gospel. And it is by this gospel being preached and told that these means of grace are heard, are taken in. So what does that mean for missions? Right? We're not hyper-Calvinists. We don't just sit here and say, yes, God has ordained and elected every single person he will choose to come to him and we do not need to do anything about it because he will make that happen. The last part of that is true. He will make that happen. But we don't know who. And we are commissioned, called, tasked with the sake of preaching the gospel so that they may hear so that they may know, so that they may come, so that they may receive this bread of life. So, we have the act of the Father and decree or election or sovereignty, providence. Those words don't all mean the same thing, but they are all highly interconnected. The act of the Son. Those whom the Father gives the Son, he will keep in. He will hold. 37b says what? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Cast out is kind of a confusing term. It's not like they come and Jesus, nah, no, 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 not you. It's not one of those things. It's, it's more of like those who come to the Son, he will forever hold is what that means. That's a better phrase, a better way of understanding what that is saying. Those who come to the Son, He will hold. They will not get out like a sheep or a dog in a fence. He will hold them. He will hold those who come to Him. Think of this modern hymn that we sing regularly, which is why it's so beautiful. He will hold me fast. That's what this verse is saying. That's what, what this is saying. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. That he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Now, you have to realize just how necessary this is. As the other hymn, 
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's us. That's us. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The act of preservation, the act of perseverance, is one that the Son does by the Spirit, preserving his people, right? Like your dog, my dog. If my dog got out into the backyard and the gate was open, he would be gone. So would you. So would I. Without Christ holding us, we enter the backyard, the gate's open, and we are gone. So we have this act of keeping, this act of preservation. We also have this act of obedience. 38. Remember, the Godhead, the triune God, effectually bringing about salvation, it requires the obedience of the Son. The obedience of the Son. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Executing, carrying out this plan of redemption. Knowing, think about this. Knowing the filth that he was coming to. I mean, literally and figuratively. Literally coming in the incarnation and being born where? In a farm, in a barn. Not sleeping on a nice mattress when he's born. Not wrapped up in his little hat that the hospital made for him in the little booties and the mittens and the blankets. Laying in hay. In a barn. The second person of the Trinity if that were to happen with any child today, there would be outrage. There would be dissatisfaction. There would at least be news present. Right? Like the baby who's born in a vehicle on Highway 64 because they couldn't get to the hospital. That makes the news. Here we have the creator of the universe, as Hebrews 1 lays out, as John 1 lays out, the second person of the Trinity, God himself incarnate, born in a barn, laying on hay in a feeding trough. The obedience that he performed to come. And then not only that, to be born in a barn, but then to be what? Put on kangaroo court Rejected by all of his followers, rejected by the population as a whole, these people whom he has come to save, to be murdered by them. And not just murder, but this existential moment in which all of sin for his elect are poured out upon him. All of the sin that the 14 of us in this room have ever committed poured out upon him. The willing obedience. Remember Moses 
in Numbers 11 last week, what he says when he hears his people complain, just kill me now so I don't have to deal with it. Jesus, he willingly obeys to his own slaughter, to his own resurrection, to his own glorification. Isaiah 53, I'd love to read it, but again, John and this echo of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who comes to a people who reject him and is then glorified because of his rejection. Isaiah 53. His obedience was necessary. It was necessary that a spotless lamb be slaughtered. It was necessary that that a, a, a perfect being with no blemish be slaughtered. It was necessary that this being be a man, the God-man, Jesus. It was necessary that he would come and do all of the things Adam was supposed to do. It was necessary that he would come and fulfill the laws that we are supposed to fulfill. Because It is only with the bloodshed of a perfect, righteous, law-abiding, law-fulfilling individual that we could ever be redeemed. All of the bloodshed of the Old Testament passages, why? Because judgment and redemption were necessary, and it required bloodshed. It required a sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered and offered in place of one who deserves that. Jesus is that. This idea of the second Adam, to use Paul's language, right? Hark the herald angels sing, the final mysterious verse that no one ever chooses to sing. Charles Wesley wrote it, the second Adam, now efface. Jesus is the second Adam. And finally, verse point three, as we fly through here to the end, the will of the Father in the plan of redemption is for the Son to conquer and for sinners to be restored. The will of the Father, this plan of redemption is for the conquering and glorification of the Son, first and foremost. And also for sinners to be restored to him. 39 and 40. And this, Jesus again, talking. This is the will of him who sent me. Remember, the obedient son. This is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing. Remember this idea of preservation. Of holding fast. He will lose nothing. Of all that was given to him. But he will raise it up on the last day. Meaning what? He will be the victorious one. There will be a lot of things lost on the last day. Lots of things lost on the last day. Right? The weeping and gnashing of teeth that runs throughout the gospel. There will be a lot lost. Things will be rolled up as a scroll and burned to use Revelation language, to use Hebrew language. There will a lot, there's a lot that will be lost. 
but not Jesus. Not the second person of the Trinity, not the obedient son, not the sacrificial lamb, not the suffering servant, all of those things. He will, he will be the one that will lose nothing. And he will be the one who will raise it up. His belongings. His people. His church. He will raise it up on the last day. Not R-A-Z-E, raise and tear down, but as bring up, hold. He will raise up on the last day. He will be the victorious, conquering, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He will lose nothing. Sinners will be restored. They will see the Father. They will be in the presence of their Savior. They will be away from, outside of, gone and done with the filth of this world. Revelation 21, 1-8. I will read this. Remember, John is the author of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away. They will be lost. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Remember, the incarnation, the Advent season, we are approaching God among us, Emmanuel, God with us here at the end. The dwelling place of God is with man. His people. He will dwell with them, and they will be what? They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says this, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these are trustworthy words. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. John, listen to this, listen to this. To the thirsty, remember what he just said in John 6? What he said to the woman at the well, those who thirst will thirst no more. To the thirsty I will give him, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be with his God. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's what the 
one on the throne says. Drop down a few verses. 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Later today, I know I've said to go read a few things, later today go and read Isaiah 60. Go and read Isaiah 60. John, the author of John the Gospel, the author of Revelation, this constant echo of Isaiah. Later today, go read Isaiah 60. I don't have time right now, but go read Isaiah 60. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So as I said earlier, when I first began this sermon. A passage that is so dripping with truth that you can wring it out like a sponge. How do we apply this to our lives? Just sit and understand that from before creation, God has laid out, he has decreed a plan of redemption to redeem you out of your sin and darkness. He has made a way that out of my sin and my darkness, like Hosea and Gomer, he has made a way calling out into the darkness an effectual calling one that we hear as his sheep, will John 10 we'll talk about later, as his sheep will hear his voice and they will come. That's what he has done. So how do you apply that to your life? Just worship. For he has made a way for reconciliation between our dead and depraved and broken state and what we read in Isaiah or in Revelation 21. We just worship because of the redemption that was purchased on our behalf and given to us at no cost, as Isaiah 55 tells us. Come and stop wasting your money elsewhere. Eat this for free. As Jesus says in John, I am the bread of life. Come and I will give you bread so you will hurt, hunger no more, you will thirst no more. We just come like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Instead of being busy bodies, toiling and striving, we just come and we just sit. We just sit and receive his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, we deserve nothing. Lord, we deserve 
no mercy, we deserve no grace. And yet you still come and you say, come and eat, come and drink, for I have something that will sustain you for eternity. So Lord, let us this morning, let us every minute, let us every day just come and sit and be at your feet, partaking in the nourishment that you have given in complete and total abundance, Lord. Let us come. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand as we sing this.